calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Welcome to Story Smack. This is Story Smack. This is episode 63 of Story Smack, a podcast about stories and storytellers in the world of pop culture. My name is A.B. Sigler. Audiobook... <laughs> I can edit that. Audiobook narrator and founding partner at Empty Set Entertainment. And my name is Scott Sigler, number one New York Times bestselling novelist, and I'm a man who truly understands the importance <laughs> of making dramatic statements to the world. And we are lucky enough to have back with us again, Mr. Rob Otto. How oh, are you, Rob? Screen. Hello, Rob. Hello. How are you doing? Good. Good how to are be you? Back and uh, what is this? Two story smacks in a row that it takes a bad movie that's actually good and talks about it, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I'm not sure. I, I'm going to defend this movie. I'm not. I'm going to say it's not actually all that bad. Well, We're it is definitely that. a child of its time. That's for <laughs> sure. That is for <laughs> sure. Absolutely. That is for sure. Uh, go ahead, baby. Intro this. All right. Uh, this week, we are discussing executive decision. Scott, do you want to give me your movie guy synopsis? I do. Movie guy synopsis. <clears throat> Fossum, pepper, Fossum. <clears throat> wow. When terrorists hijack a plane traveling from Greece to Washington, D.C., U.S. Army Specialist David Grant and Lieutenant Colonel Austin Travis join forces to bring the plane to safety. While terrorists on board the plane claim they hijacked the plane to force U.S. government to release their leader, who was captured by military forces, David and Austin discover that the plane is carrying a bomb full of nerve gas to be released on Washington, D.C. Dum, dum, dum. We always like to open this up because it's always fun to look at the financials. Baby, tell me about the financials. Well, I just said this, and this is going to be, we're going to talk a lot about this during the show, I think. Uh, This is also a product of its time. Uh, It uh, cost $60 million to make back in 1996 when it was released. In today's dollars, that would have been $99.6 million. But it took in just shy of $122 million adjusted for inflation to 2021. That's approximately $202 million. So definitively speaking, this was a successful movie for the, for the company that, you know, the production house that made it. Oh my God. Um, Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Wow. 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 Yeah. It's also, uh, you know, I, I, I'll go on record. Obviously you have a different opinion. I'll go on record as saying, I agree with Dusty, I think in the chat room who said it's so bad. It's good. Yeah. It's worth watching. It's fun. There are some really gorgeous moments. Um, I think the lead enemy, um, uh, Nagi Hassan, is absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. We're going to get into him. Yeah, absolutely brilliant actor. And of course, I I would also like to point out that we we chose executive decision because it is a couple days after the president was inaugurated, Mm -hmm. and then it turns out we picked a movie that the president doesn't even appear. Uh, Yeah. 
you know, like, I confused like this with Air Force One. Yes. And I think that, I think what I did in my head was I combined Executive Decision with Air Force One mm-hmm. and thought it was the same movie. I remember when Rob suggested, I'm like, that's so smart because of presidents and stuff. It's perfect. But, but there's some, uh, I forget what it's called, but there's some movie where like they storm the White House too. And in my head. Oh, there's two of those. That happened White in House. this film. That, that ha- part of that happened. Olympus in this film. has fallen. Olympus, yeah, I think it's Olympus has fallen. And what? <laughs> that has nothing to do with this movie either. <laughs> nothing to do with the president. Oh, yeah. right. The so, president's on vacation uh, in this whole movie. Like, they, do men- they do mention the president. Well, now it's an they executive him, decision. Yeah. And the president I would also like decide. to point out that a lot of times before we start, A tells us what drink she is making the two mm. of you, and okay. then I try to make the same drink. Um, she forgot to do that. Or uh, just I sent in the email. I said you. No, in the email I sent oh, yesterday. I said. Then I said it's I'm, your choice. Let me know. <laughs> then I'm stupid. And what I did was I made an executive decision <laughs> to make my drink that I was drinking back in 1996, a Tangeray and Tonic. Oh, so cheers. that's awesome. Cheers. cheers. Yeah. Normally. Um, if you guys don't know this at home, we talk about it each week. Um, we, Scott and I, when we got married, we were gifted a subscription to, to Shaker and Spoon. Oh, and when Rob right. joined as the Empty Set Movie Maven, we sent one to him so mm-hmm. that we could sort of be sharing a drink. Um, this week, we didn't do that. And and for, for reasons that have nothing to do with the, the business or the movie making or whatever, uh, Scott started drinking scotch a little bit early today. Little early so today. Little I little figured, early ah, today. we'll do it next week. Troubles, in, scotch, scotch. troubles in the world of rock and roll. Uh, Rob, I would like to point out that this is uh, scotch which I had never had in 1996 my entire life. Uh, yes. This is something that came later in life. You know, at the time, I would have been having an MGD, would have Miller Janet Jackson, probably. And Rob is drinking a Tanqueray and Tonic, which is a perfectly serviceable drink in 1996. It's a terrific, clean drink. I was probably drinking Zima and Mountain Dew. Oh, God. Uh, Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I I did once try to mix a Bud Bud Light with a Fago Red Pop. That did not work out very well. Let's start, let's... (laughs) <laughs> Let's go over the cast, ladies and gentlemen. We're gonna, what we're going to do here is we're going to go through the cast members, and we're all going to take turns talking about those cast members. Then we're going to get in to the heated rivalry that took place between Kurt Russell and Steven Seagal, and all of the all of this shit flinging that went on in the set of this movie. It's a this movie is. Amazing! It even got made. So much shit went down. Get yeah, it. I do. Uh, my brother Jude is in the chat room, and he said he's not staying very long. So I just want to say I ah. love you, Jude. All right, my man, Jude. <laughs> Jude. And he also said that Air Force One makes him cry. Rob, lead us off and tell us about uh, Kurt Russell, please. Yeah, Kurt Russell is the superstar that that this movie got made around. Um, and you will see, of course, the resemblance once I put my <laughs> Kurt Russell I mean, glasses you do. on. Yeah, right? for oh, sure. I mean, that's just it's frightening. That's it's just frightening. frightening. You have a better yeah, haircut, I mean, he though. Was, yeah, he, he was a star. Um, he already made Escape from New York, The Thing, Silkwood, Big Trouble in Little China, Tequila Sunrise, Tango and Cash, Overboard. Oh I what mean, a star. Was Unbelievable. Gold. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And what a great, like, by then, oh, my goodness, what a, what a varied yeah. actor. Like, Silkwood and Tango and Cash, wildly different. And, and then you throw in, like, Overboard, and then you throw in Tombstone. Right? Yeah, I mean, well, exactly. Just, he yeah, is he's, all over he's, the place, and he's his a career king. has continued for the 25 years since this movie came yeah. out. And rightfully so, just yeah, for death, sure. All the way up to Death Proof, and, just, and one of my favorite, uh, Soldier is one of my favorites. That yeah, doesn't get a lot of respect, nice. but I love that movie. And, you know, this such is a the, fan, such uh, a fan. This is the, we'll talk a tiny bit about this, because it sort of comes up in 96. Uh, we'll ta- get into it a little bit later. But he's also, he's had this long-storied Hollywood career, and in this era of Me Too, he's been with his girlfriend? 
for 37 years, yeah. Goldie Hawn, mm-hmm. you know, and ha- doesn't have a lot of that coming around and coming in. So that's important right. because you, you want this sort of guy to survive. You want like a Harrison Ford sort of guy to survive Hollywood and do great. And yes. on the flip side of the coin, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> I will also, uh, I will be the fan of this gentleman. I'm a huge fan of the first four Steven Seagal movies, maybe the first five. That's the right way to Mr. say that. Mr. Steven Seagal, uh, <laughs> playing Austin Travis. He already made Above the Law, Hard to Kill, Mark for Death, Out for Justice, which are all freaking fantastic. I love them. <laughs> Two Under Sieges and On Deadly Ground, not, you know, quite so as fantastic. He isn't named in the opening credits. Steven Seagal barely has two minutes of screen time, which I... You guys have both told me this, and like I, I got to go back and rewatch this with a stopwatch. Yeah. Um, and then he, of course, uh, spoilers. It's a lot of spoilers, ladies and gentlemen. Well, you had yeah, your always chance. spoilers. It's story smash. He gets his two minutes screen time, and he dies with a heroic one-liner. Uh, it's the first time in a movie where a Steven Seagal character gets killed. The name of Steven Seagal's character, Austin Travis, is derived from the city of Austin, Texas, which is located in Travis County. How did how was his uh, his uh, performance received? Uh, well. <laughs> He, he received. <laughs> this is unfair. This is so unjust. <laughs> go on. This is bull. This is bull. Oh, he received a Razzie Award for worst supporting actor uh, for his what? A nomination. Oh, he, just, yeah, Razzie, he wasn't no. even bad enough to get the award. <laughs> <laughs> he was so bad at being bad, he didn't win. <laughs> he won a Razzie for worst supporting actor for his performance film, but lost to Marlon Brando for The Island of Doctor Moreau. That's uh, that's pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, it's an honor just Steven to be Seagal. nominated. This is Steven Seagal now. Yeah. I need to trim my beard into a Steven Seagal beard. No, you don't. <laughs> or a monkey tail, which a lot of your fans were asking for. I'll just tell you no. guys, no monkey. I mean, it's his no, face. It's he not, can do whatever he wants, but I'm pretty tail. sure he's not going to choose a monkey, a monkey tail. tail. Yeah, Steven Seagal, is into, that hairline then, is impressive. I'm uh, not going to lie. Uh, a gentleman who was a stellar in his early days and perhaps has not aged as gracefully as one would like, right flipped over to someone who does not age at all. Ever. Yeah. The incredible... Halle Incredible Berry. Yes. Halle Berry. This is a screenshot, a screen grab from Executive Decision. That's Halle Berry's character, Jean. Uh, she is actually, obviously, Halle Berry today. But back then, she was just sort of ramping up into her mm-hmm. superstardom at the time. She'd just been in Losing Isaiah, which was a, it's a dramatic movie. It's a very, also a very 90s movie, very emotional movie. Mm-hmm. And, um... And her best work, I think, I mean, obviously Monster's Ball is ahead of executive decision. It's a few years down the line. I think her Bond moment is ahead of the, is is, is uh, further down the timeline than this. But she actually had refused this part at first. Her, her um, up-and-coming star was up-and-coming, and she was like, you know what, I'm not going to be a flight attendant. And they were like, cool, we'll give you a million dollars. And she's like, you know what, let me rethink this. I will be you know what? a I'm flight gonna, attendant. I'm going to make that outfit look good for a million exactly. dollars. <laughs> and, you know, it's her first million dollar, which is a big it's a huge like check mark in her Hollywood career and also in careers of this is a not star. I mean, it's a starring role, but it's not one of the stars, one of the protagonists or the villain. And she gets paid a million dollars for it. And that, you know, rising tide raises all ships. Yes. So I'm all in for that. And then a wants to, I a, have to do it. A, I have to. a made. God damn it. Rob already stole the line. A made an executive decision. <laughs> it's not funny. So anymore. If it's you guys funny. are listening or watching along, you know, we, um, we tend to rotate through talking about the stars and the box office and whatever, and then we, we have a free-form conversation. But I could not allow... Scott decided he wanted to show these photos in a certain way, and I couldn't allow anybody but me to talk about my boyfriend, Oliver Platt. I love him so much. Uh, I think he's absolutely fantastic. He plays in this movie uh, DARPA engineer Dennis Cahill. Dennis Cahill is kind of the um, architect of what happens uh, uh, 
in I don't know how to not spoil it, but <laughs> in you the movie spoil. and in you, the plane or whatever. Spoil. We gave people yeah, it's, we're, it's a twenty five year old movie that yeah. debuted twenty five years ago. That's, I think that's the spoiler fair. window is closed. Yeah. But one of the things I love about Oliver Platt is he's this he's a terrific actor. He's very well um yeah, he, he is often appears erudite and stuff, but he chooses some of my favorite guilty pleasure movies to make. Um he did Working Girls, which I love, Flatlay, original Flatliners, which I love, Postcards from the Edge, which I hope everybody who saw it loved, Indecent Proposal, Benny and June, and my absolute favorite, Three Musketeers rendition. I'm not saying it's the best Three Musketeers that was ever filmed, but it is my favorite, and D'Artagnan is the correct color, and I am proud of that, too. All right. <laughs> All right. And then we get to, uh, I'm, a big, I'm a big fan of bad guys. All of the my- big baddie. All of my little uh, Funko Pops—they're all monsters and bad guys. Like his little Freddy Krueger. That's true. They're all villains, aren't all they? All villains, all villains. And this villain because the villains it. make the hero. That's the right? villain. I mean, not it's a good it's villain. The same thing in yeah. your novels, Scott. Yep. I mean, the 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 better the villain is, the the better the hero has to be. And people get involved and they want to see the bad guy lose. Yep. So much, and that's what David Suchet did uh, when he played Nagi Hassan. Um, uh, he's he's the bad guy. He's in charge of, you know, overseeing what's going to happen. And he's such a bad guy. He doesn't even tell everyone the working for him, guy. his yeah. compatriots, right? Mm -hmm. That his real mission is going to be crashing this plane in Washington, D.C. and, you know, infecting so many people and killing them with this nerve gas. That's mm -hmm. his plan the whole time. They think once their leader gets let go, they're going to turn the plane around and everybody's going to leave. Never his plan. It's yeah. very, where he even. It's very. Uh, it's very diehard esque in that regard. Yeah. Where the bad guy right. sets up a whole. This this whole. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Milieu. This this whole fake story about what he's really trying to do and lets all mm -hmm. the police and lets the government know. A red herring. And then he's sliding in under the. He's sliding in under the fence because yeah. he's a wild card and he's going to do a whole different thing. But he made an executive decision. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Also, I will I say, mean, David Suchet, in, as this character, is never what we tend to see now in these, you know, big good versus big bad movies. Mm -hmm, he mm -hmm. is never, uh, he's always ruthless, but never obvious. And that is, I think, hugely powerful. I, he's, I think he did the best job with his role in this, he's really in this solid, film. Really solid. Yeah, the, the only times he really loses it is when he thinks Halle Berry's talking to somebody on the phone, which turns out she was, mm -hmm. um, when he has to kill one of his own men because he has to tell him what's really happening and we're not turning the plane around. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then right at the end when he's just like, you know, I'll Akbar, heck with it. I'm going to kill the pilots and this plane's going to crash anyway. Yeah. And, and the rest of the time he is very specific he is very determined he is on point he's not one of these wild crazy bad guys yeah which which are all the scariest ones because he's thought out every possible well almost yeah. every possible he's, way he's more benedict cumberbatch than gary Busey on that scale well exactly it, right yeah. that is a and scale Suchet, and that is definitely true <laughs> yeah and Suchet had been acting for for decades i mean this is the guy that played hercule poirot poirot for 25 years he was already mm -hmm. was he already, 10 years was he already doing that series. when this came out yeah. yep 10 yeah, years oh yeah in. yeah wow he was already 10 years into the poirot series oh my god which ended only seven years ago I mean, he played poirot <laughs> for 25 freaking years right that's, that's impressive baller. that is so strong and um then we've got one of my favorite actors oh move around 
John Leganzamo, he plays Rat, a member of Travis's team of badasses, his uh, his multicultural team of badasses, which was a, a step up in 1996. <laughs> He's a Green Bray in the movie, but his range as an actor was well established in the time he took this role, having played everything from the drag queen Chichi Rodriguez in to Wong Fu, thanks for everything. Ooh, do I love that movie. Julie Newmar and Benny Bianco in Carlito's Way. And of course, he was uh, just stuck as the standout, standout talent in a horrible Spawn movie. Just, yes. yeah. he just was uh, unbelievable Although, in the Spawn movie. And the, everything else about it was just terrible. One so. thing that's really interesting about John Leguizamo, especially in this, like he he plays his, he, he does this an awful lot where he is, Tr- truly sort of inhabits his character mm-hmm. and they are this is not the um, for me one of the biggest memorable things but unlike some actors I can't say like oh yeah John Leguizamo as Benny Blanco absolutely his star performance I can't do mm-hmm. that because he was also Chi Chi Rodriguez and mm-hmm. I like there's so many versions of oh my goodness this is such a standout performance that he's he's, he's a stud. Like a Just lifelong dyed in the wool actor, Philip Seymour Hoffman esque oh, kind wow. of guy yeah, who did true. not who did not uh, you know lose some of the uh, lose some of it. Well, I, I, Philip Seymour Hoffman lost yeah. himself, but you know he didn't get into the Hollywood thing. He's just a good. Strong, solid actor. And uh, as we move forward with the show, we have a lot of comments from uh, from John, and they are very funny. We're going to get into that all. <laughs> yeah. And but, I, I also think part of it is that he's seen as a comedic side, right? Yeah, and, you always. Know, he, he's, mm-hmm. got, he's got the best one-liners, which, again, we will talk about coming up in a little while as well. But I think the fact that people saw him as more of a comic relief rather than a leading man mm-hmm. certainly didn't help him get past that role. But what I like is that, you know, he comes in as the military guy who's not supposed to be in charge, but because of the circumstance has to be in charge. Mm -hmm. And his thing is always, well, I guess we're just going to storm the cabin and try to kill as many of them as possible. And he has to keep getting talked off the, the ledge of that. And guess but, what happened? He's just as, yeah, sui- right. he's just as he suicidal listens. as the terrorists. He's like, I yeah. one thing, I don't care if I die doing my one thing, I'm going exactly to do it. Right. Yeah. But he's smart enough to listen and let other people's ideas try out, knowing that worst case scenario, we're going to storm the cabin <laughs> and start shooting people. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting because at the time, I believe even at the time that this movie came out, but certainly in the 80s and 90s, or maybe early 90s, the, um, the Army's uh, go-to... Advertisement was an army of one, and I'm an army brat. And my my mom and my stepdad and my brother all served in the army admirably. And I was super mad about the idea that there's a flipping army of one, because that literally <laughs> is the antithesis of what the army's about. The army is about yeah. I'm going to train you to to say how high when I say jump, and already be getting ready to jump when you ask how high. It is about following orders, and he does that. In his role, he's a he's supposed to be a Green Beret, I think, in this, right? Yeah, yeah, and that's right. Uh, yeah. and he does that so well, and that is truly the the way the army actually works. Like he wants to do a thing, he wants to fuck around and find out, you know. But he's willing to do the thing, and then when he gets talked down, he's like, "All right, fine." All right, let's move on to another member of Austin's team. <laughs> this is the best picture I could find for Joe Martin. Oh, Cappy. Oh, Cappy. Rob, you can't see this, but Cappy is duct taped to a backboard in this picture. Yes. That's, Cappy uh, had a that's rough, the only one we could find. Rough movie. Which, again, as a sergeant, um, you know, he he would have been someone that probably, and, and one of the older members of the LTC team, mm-hmm. he probably would have been in charge, right? Yep. Something's mm-hmm. happened. But Cappy breaks his back on the way into the plane. And he's like the bomb expert, you know, he's he's the one that's supposed to be taking care of all this. Right. And he is strapped to this board with that neck thing on the whole time. 
right? I mean, that is like it's a wonderful like the character best device. airline donut ever. <laughs> 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 but it's uh, Sergeant Campbell Cappy Matheny, um, and he actually ends up still helping you being able to use his brain, even though he can't use his body. He uh-huh. helps the guy from DARPA. He helps. Um, uh, uh, what was the what was uh, Cahill. Cahill? Thank yeah. you. Thank yeah. you very much. Helps him end up dismantling the bomb. Um, Morton was all over TV for decades. I mean, we're talking from Sanford and Son to Miami Vice to Equalizer to MASH. Oh, and I mean, it was just all these dang, small roles. Dang. And he got some movie stuff. He was the lead scientist in Terminator 2. Oh, right? yeah, that's right. I forgot about yep. that. Holy and then, shit. And then he goes on to much bigger television roles in Scandal, um, in God Friended Me, which is still on TV mm-hmm. right now. So he is he has come into his own yeah. as a leading actor rather than one of the side guys, which is what he was back in the 90s. And what I'm sort of seeing here, I know we're moving on uh, shortly, but what I'm sort of seeing here is quite a lot of these characters are, or these actors, especially the the men are mm-hmm. well there's mostly men but they're all people who are the thing that i just that i said about kurt russell they have had long long most of them mm-hmm. not everyone have had long careers where they've done well where they've taken divergent parts and stuff like that yep. and grown as an actor mm-hmm. which is what they deserve you know that kind of thing is exactly what they should be doing and have um you know um, acquitted themselves well in the in the cutthroat Hollywood It does look like most of this cast has earned their long careers with mm, repeated yeah. repeated excellent performances and showing up and doing the job. And uh, Cappy, I'll say this real quick. As far as writing goes and screenwriting goes, this was an awesome device. You take the second in command and you make him incapacitated. And then in the middle of this action-adventure movie, in a plane, you've got a guy strapped to a backboard who can barely be moved. And you have to manage yeah. that as well as all the other problems that go on. But we'll you know, we'll you get into the screenplay a little bit yeah, later. Yeah, I was going to tell you. Let's, yeah. let's touch, after we're done with the, okay. the characters, let's okay. touch back about that. Because you talk a lot about oh, no. um, having to time lock and all that stuff. Now, now we're going to talk about my favorite character in this whole movie. Oh my goodness, you guys. <laughs> I don't care about the character so Just, much. I didn't notice. Nope. Well, the actor, I'm Whip Hubley. Hello, my name is Whip Hubley, and I will whip your candy ass. That's what I'll do. I, I'm going to make an executive decision to whip your pan- candy ass. I had never. Hey, I, Michael Deschamps, what? Are you kidding me? I had never. Uh, I've seen Mr. Hubley in many, many movies, but I didn't know his name ever, even mm-hmm. though he was in Roxanne and other things. Like, uh, I'm Whip Hubley. If your name is Whip, you've got to grow up in school. you got to be ready to fight. you got to wonder if his name is technically Whip, though. Whip. I'm whip you, please. I mean, once no, it's, you become it's, whip. He, cha- he changed it for Hollywood. His name is actually Whip. <laughs> <laughs> so, getting on to Whip Hubley. He played Baker in the strike team. Before this movie, he was in Species. He was in Babylon 5 and one of the best TV shows ever. He was in Murder, She Wrote, yeah, which I know pretty much everybody yeah. had to be in at some point. Yeah, exactly. I died on her lawn. It's fact. You did, Fact. yeah. Uh, Sean Dyer, you are correct. I that I loved Oops. Eureka, and I loved, loved, loved him in Eureka. He he, think about that crazy job he had, and he acquitted himself where, well there too. So the last uh. character or the last actor we're going to talk about, Mr. B. D. Wong as Sergeant yes. Louis Young, rounding out the crack team of heroes. He plays Wu. Uh, in Jurassic Park, that's how you probably that's how you know, know that him. face. You know uh, that you're like, I know that face, man. I know it. Yeah. It's the there haircut that throws you off. He has like the bullet head haircut. Yeah, yep. like, 
It doesn't fit that guy's face. There's somebody else in there. Oh yeah, put a white lab coat on him. That's and who yeah, and is. make him and make him a total is. jerk and not a team player. Mm-hmm. And then <laughs> and then he's uh, the Jurassic Park woo instead of uh, Louis Young here. Um, but of course, uh, yet again, and I will stop saying this. I think, but. Uh, another gentleman well deserved his career he's had a huge career he's had a huge long career yeah. and has done really well and he's still you know he's still working he's still good looking he's still friendly he still looks better without Those that of you, haircut. Uh, if you were listening to the podcast oops sorry after the live you got to google this you got to google bd wong executive said bd and then space wong executive decision and look at a haircut that literally gives him a square head it's quite yeah. impressive <laughs> He's he's an actual square guy, and then he he's gets a blockhead. His, he's a yeah. blockhead. He's a blockhead, and then you move on to his uh, his his more traditional regular look, and he's got that swoopy luxurious hair. So now luxurious. that we're done with the characters, yes. I, I would I I wonder if you'd be willing to talk a little bit about your one of your problems as a creator that we talk about all the time is you having to. Um, uh, do a time lock and yep. manage the number of characters. And I know a lot of the people listening, and I don't want you to ruin this, but a lot of the people listening are quite right now listening to Fitzroy. Mm-hmm. And we talked about this a whole lot where you have precise military action that you need to have, all that stuff, and right. you need to make it a reasonably lengthed thing. Well, this, you know, I'll, I'll discuss that in the context of this film. This film, the screenwriting is is very taut and they do a great job with what's called uh, both option locks and time locks. So those are the two driving forces of any story. Either you have X amount of time to get a thing done or you have X amount of options and if you don't you don't succeed at some of those options, then you're going to get the horrible consequences of what's going to go on. Most action adventure movies uh, revolve around revolve around time locks because mm-hmm. you know like this plane the, the you're constantly getting updates on how much longer the plane has until it reaches DC and how much longer it has till it gets shot down. Mm-hmm. And in Fitzroy, there are both option locks and, and time locks, but this movie does a good job of that. Um, and you also call characters. That's a thing that I find very hard to take as a reader when uh-huh. you do yeah. like, um, uh, if you guys have read Fitzroy and I'm not going to give any spoilers for that, good. but there are people that you like and and got to know and you want to see how they fare and then they're gone and um, they don't fare so good <laughs> well because they're gone they don't fare so good but it, it's hard for me sometimes but you i see the reason for it it's just hard as a reader sometimes to be but you can't be invested in these two people well, and you need to be invested this in is one people. of the one of the happy accents of the screenplay and the difficult personalities involved which we're going to get to is you you have to always as as a writer screenwriters or books you have to constantly be upping the stakes and one way to up the stakes is to show that you mean business when someone gets into trouble they could very well die and killing off a major character early is a way to do that killing off succession of secondary characters like of course the whole horror movie genre is built on this let's get to know these five crazy college kids and start killing them off one by one because what happens is when once you have done that and then you put jamie lee curtis in danger the viewer stops thinking is on the edge of the seat because they know she's expendable. Like this person could die. That's what made Scream so fantastic. They took the top billed actress and killed her right off the bat, which you know mm-hmm. anybody else could go at any moment. It matters. Well, and I didn't understand that. I mean, I had lived that, and that totally actually happens to me all the time, of mm-hmm. course, as a viewer and a reader. But I didn't quite understand the. Uh, it's not quite right to say manipulation, although it is a manipulation of my feelings. But it it's not uh, it, it's it's for my benefit, right? Um, to do that to me, I found was quite interesting. Uh, he and he kept pointing it out, like, no, I, I you won't care. 
you won't care if Quentin lives if nobody ever dies. Kind but of there, there are movies where everybody lives, and there are many, many books where everybody mm-hmm. lives, including like here's our four plucky characters who all gravitate around <laughs> this one magician, and they're all in every book, and you know they're going to live, and and people love that. There's certain yeah. books that people love a series where there's comfort in knowing who's going to make it through. What I do is different. What this movie does is different. Is everybody's on the chopping block, and that's a different style of for storytelling. Sure. I also think it, that a mix of that is, for me personally, a mix of that is is how I like my entertainment. I, I'm not saying in one in one product, but I like books where where I know people are going to get through, and I know I like books where I don't know what's going to happen. Rob, what were you saying? And it goes it goes all the way back to Psycho. I mean, Janet Lee was the biggest name. Oh, she got right. top billing in Psycho, and the thing that pissed Hitchcock off at the time was that people would stroll into movies late after they had started. And so part of the campaign was don't (laughs) miss the first 10 minutes of this movie because people would just stroll into movies late Mm. and he didn't like that. And so he killed Janet Lee off in the first 10 minutes of that movie. Spoiler. Everyone was shocked, right? That's, that's the point. The other side, Scott, I know you've talked about this in writing where you have to have a very easily identifiable characteristic. So when that character pops back up, mm-hmm. you remind the reader who they are without a whole bunch of exposition. Yeah. Right. Um, I know Stephen King is fantastic at that. But best. I think that's why you get like this, you know, rainbow coalition of faces on on the team. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, the black guy, the white guy, the Hispanic guy, you know, the, the, Asian, the, guy. the Asian guy. Mm-hmm. Right. And so. Baker and Louie don't really have a lot of lines. They're, mm-hmm. they're, there's not a lot of character built up with them. But every time you see them, you know who they are mm-hmm. because they look different than everybody else. If you just put in a bunch of, you know, six, you know, red blooded Aryan yes. uh, looking army guys in there, you're going to have trouble distinguishing. It's hard to see it. Yeah. It's hard to see at a glance who is yeah. who. And that, that's one thing they did a very good job in this movie is in, in a group shot in a dark shot. You can easily identify which character is which. Yeah. And I also think there's, uh, uh, at least in my experience as a um, receiver of entertainment, uh, a consumer of entertainment, uh, there's also something to be said for watching Watching three people go like watch watching the Goonies go through everything they go through together that their relationship is super important. Mm -hmm. But knowing that, you know, these are colleagues, you want to sort of see things go well and go poorly and change and things like that. And I think we get that in this movie, too. Uh, I'll say one last thing. Then we're going to get back to executive decision. I have worked in the past on a World War II screenplay. Mm-hmm. And one of the problems with World War II is you're writing about the American oh, Doughboys in World right. War II. It's mm-hmm. basically a bunch of white dudes. And yep. when you, so then you have to do things in the script like you have to give a visual identifier on their uniform or yep. their gear. This guy, oops, this guy's got the cross bandoleros. This is the guy carrying the heavy machine, machine gun. So when you see them, you can tell who is who because they all look alike. Yeah. And when you were working, on that screenplay we were also uh watching other sort of smaller budget Mm -hmm. military things and some of those movies had uh non-historically accurate actors playing some of the roles meaning specifically there were there was a platoon and there was a platoon that had white and black and asian people in Mm -hmm. it and we Literally, like you guys right now are when you watch TV, you're like, why are these people not wearing masks? We did the same thing. We were like, wait a minute. This feels like this is unfair this is to, not that, how that, war to was. that one African-American gentleman. This is unfair. <laughs> you oh, know, yeah. that kind of thing, because it didn't exist back then. And we don't have a historical record of it back then. And uh, yeah, it's an interesting thing to have to overcome. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to say for it? 
That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. On a remote island in Frigid Lake Superior, a fabricated creature birthed from the mind of a disturbed genius stalks the very people who created it. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling author Scott Sigler is a classic tale of science gone horribly wrong. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to executive decision. Now, Rob, the most important thing about this movie, in my opinion, is uh, the feud, the the difficulties yeah. between Seagal and Kurt Russell. Tell us about that. And and here's the dealio. The you know it's stories have come out on both sides of this. Like the feud was the reason that Steven Seagal gets killed early, or he was always supposed to get killed early, and he's just an ass. So there was a feud. Um, and, and from everything I've been able to gather together, I think the second thing is correct. Like the yeah. very first script had Austin Travis dying exactly how Steven Seagal dies in this movie. Oh, okay. And it's okay. That you're, so, I mean, the, the argument was that maybe what happened was Seagal was supposed to be a big star in this opposite Kurt Russell and Kurt Russell and Steven Seagal did not get along. I mean, they, they were the two big stars coming in. Kurt Russell, I guarantee, thought, listen, yeah, this might be an action movie, but it's not a Steven Seagal action type movie, right? I mean, this has scripts and characters and right. words and things. It's not all just punchy, punchy. Words. So, Anybody see yeah. Richie? So uh, I, I guarantee he probably came in with an attitude and Seagal came in as he did every time he was on set. This is my movie. Right. Wow. And, and and he has no sense of humor, apparently. And it comes out <laughs> later that he's quite a misogynist and doesn't treat the female sex all all that great uh, as it stands as well. And so that's that's the issue. And that's what you start thinking might have happened. But the original script had him dying before he ever got on the main airplane. Rob, mm-hmm. question. I don't know the answer to this. Maybe you don't either. But when you get Steven Seagal in the movie. And it mm-hmm. becomes apparent he's going to die one way or another early on in the movie. Is the opening action sequence, was that added so Steven Seagal could do what Steven Seagal does? Which is, you know, take on three guys with a knife while you've got four guys in your squad with automatic weapons just hanging out close by. Is that Was that added? I, I bet it was rewritten. I think the idea is to show how well this squad works together okay. on their own. And they don't need any other extra people helping them out because they've got everything down. They know each other's moves. They're together. This is a great squad, very efficient. Now, since it was Steven Seagal, I imagine he said, well, yeah, make sure at some point I'm taking on four guys and don't have a gun on me because, you know, I'm only, you know, the leader of an army brigade, but I don't have a weapon on me. (laughs) But isn't this also so that he has the failure behind him, right? Because they don't. Yeah, that's also one of the plot devices there. But I think the shininess of Seagal not having a weapon and being a badass anyway (laughs) might be his. when you first see this movie, you assume he's going to be doing that shit for the next 90 minutes. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Right? You don't realize that exactly. that's the only time you're going to see him like that. And yes, A's, the plot point is because you always have to have some sort of tension between the expert that they bring into the already existing unit. And it was faulty intelligence by Dr. Grant, played by Kurt Russell, that led Seagal and his team there where one of their guys died. 
Right. And so that automatic tension is built between Kurt Russell and Steven Seagal. Is there, and, and is there any uh, known history between these two guys before this movie that they did? Because they were both box office titans at the, like making a shit ton you of money for actors? everybody. Yeah, the actors. Is there any backstory to this or just not? Not that I know of, unless they had words through the press. You know, I mean, mm. if if one of Seagal's movies did good and knocked Kurt's movie out of the top spot, did someone ask him about Seagal and? He had made some offhanded comment that pissed Seagal off. I don't know. But keep in mind, it takes very little to piss Steven Seagal off. This is a, from one of Le, from Leguizamo's uh, autobiography. He and talks I, about. Oh, yeah, right. He talks about that. He, he made a he he thought Steven Seagal was making a joke and he laughed at the joke because he thought it was really funny. Turns out Steven Seagal wasn't making a joke. He was being serious and did not take kindly to John Leguizamo making fun of him and laughing at him. Yeah. So he elbowed him into the wall. Oh, yeah. my goodness. So it might not have taken much from Kurt Russell to piss Steven Seagal off is all. I'm Although I do remember that there were rumors um, that part of the reason that Kurt Russell eventually accepted this role was that Steven Seagal's uh, role was short lived because of maybe uh, so, yeah, and this is rumor but because his uh, Steven Seagal's ex-wife was coming out with um, some uh, indication that he was he was like uh, a tell all kind of thing yeah that he was uh, somewhat abusive in their marriage or at least had an abusive moment in their marriage and so so yeah. Kurt Russell was a little bit hesitant but then well, this is interesting. Long, so. The face of Steven Seagal was added on Indonesian, German, and Dutch cinema posters mm -hmm. and VHS covers to attract more viewers, as he was quite popular there at the time. So that's yeah. Uh, the the image you used, Scott. Yeah, that had Seagal on one side and Kurt Russell on the other. Uh -huh. That's not the American poster. The American poster only had Kurt Russell. Wow. So it was wow, because wow, wow. and and why he wasn't even mentioned in the opening credit scroll, right? Because it was kind of like uh, Warner Brothers didn't want to fool anybody into thinking this is a Steven Seagal movie. Apparently they don't give a crap if you're European or Asian if they fool you into going to a movie. So. <laughs> but it was still good. It's still good from a screenwriting point of view and, and holding the audience on the edge of their seat. Like once you watch Steven F and Seagal die mm -hmm. early, you know that Rat yes. and, and Cappy yeah. and everybody else is on the bubble, which is kind of weird when you think about how few few casualties there are in the crew for the rest of the movie. Well, and how, how, how inconsequential uh, Austin Travis is to this movie. Uh, I know he's the guy who puts them all on that plane, and he specifically is the guy who puts David Grant on that plane. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Th that. And puts Cahill on that plane. Yeah, and Neither Cahill, one of them right. was ever supposed to enter the plane. It was Seagal that got them up there. So other than that, uh, Austin Travis doesn't... Mm, doesn't really matter to this movie Although, so much, except it's a he's a, it's the first time he dies. Yeah, Steven Seagal but dies. one of the best death scenes when <laughs> when the plane has to break out and you just see Steven no. Seagal's body fly <laughs> off into space. Okay, that's pretty damn cool. I had to rewind that and watch it again. <laughs> it's ridiculous, but good. Um, Go, baby, throw another one in there. Uh, so I uh, going back to the John Leguizamo, um, Steven Seagal. Uh, he th there's this idea that when the lieutenant colonel dies early, that it's Rat Rat's character kind of expands to take a, some of that. Like um, mm -hmm. I don't I don't know how to like this sort of bro brute army dude role, and, okay. and that gets a little bit bigger, um, which is kind of interesting in itself because I think those two actors play an army green beret quite differently. 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. No doubt that they had different characters. And that's that was part of the thought as well, that maybe Rat's role grew bigger when they decided to get rid of Steven well, Seagal. There's also got to be something like... Rat was always supposed to be the guy taking over the platoon. I have such a hard time pronouncing John's last name. Leganzamo? Leguizamo. Leguizamo. He's Leguizamo. also, he, I, I got to think, once you get that dude on the set, once you get that dude on the set and start acting, you're like, okay, this guy's, we got to get this guy more screen time. He's just, he's just awesome. So that had to be part of it too. What I would like to discuss uh, real quick, if we may, is um, did anybody notice that it was Oceanic Air? It was Oceanic Ooh. Airlines was the flight and I was like, oh snap, that's like lost. So then I, and then I go to look it up this is fun. I'll make this as quick as possible. Oce- Oceanic Air, because shocker, airlines don't like movies where Delta <laughs> Airlines crash into the Potomac. Yeah, that's Northwest not a Northwest does not like to see a terrorist bomb shatter the fuselage. They don't like that. <laughs> so what they do is there is this running joke in Hollywood or this running device where the where Oceanic Airlines, if you got to blow up a plane, you get you you call Oceanic Airlines. Of course, it was huge and lost. That's where it became big. Yeah. It's also been um, in. Let's see, TV. Here we go. Alias Castle in Plain Sight Colony. It's in Chuck Chuck versus the Helicopter. Wow. It's in Crossing Jordan. Diagnosis Murder. Flash Forward. All the planes falling out of the sky and flash forward. It's in Flipper Fringe. <laughs> Flipper. It's in future freaking Rama. It's in future Rama. The Goldbergs, like four episodes of the Goldbergs. Grey's Anatomy, LAX, Once Upon a Time, The Pretender, Pushing wow. Daisies, The Strain, Transformers, uh, Cybertron, Inferno. That's the Transformers. White Collar, X-Files, Zero Hour, and then it's also in video games, Dead Island, The Wolf Among Us, Super... I can't even pronounce that one. And then, <laughs> then... There's reused footage. So they've got all the stock footage, which they then sell off to shows like After the Sunset of Film, Category 6, The Day of Destruction, uh, JAG, Diagnosis Murder, Panic in the Skies, <laughs> Award Home. It's incredible. So like there's this whole fake airline that is now, that's what that's what you fly it's when you're a, not when you fly it's an, Oceanic. It's an Alan Smithy airline. Tell yeah, what it, right, tell the, what uh, yes. Uh, pre- so if you guys don't know, presented by Alan Smithy. Yeah, if you guys don't know Alan Smithy, Howard, I know you're in the chat room and you totally know this. And Spencer Adams, good afternoon to you as well. Um, uh, Alan Smithy during um, the McCarthyism era, Alan Smithy became what um, what oh, people who were doing we the, yeah people <laughs> who were doing uh, films that they weren't supposed to be doing. They started ah. to use Alan Smithy as their their credit and their title so that they wouldn't um be be associated oh wouldn't be oh did it then change into i don't want to be associated with this horrible movie yeah that's how it it started and that that's where it became rob i don't like what they did to my movie so i'm going to take my name (laughs) off just say it was produced by alan smithy here's the best part this is so meta it hurts right there's a movie called an Alan Smithy film. Okay. It's about a character who is actually named Alan Smithy, and everybody thinks he directed all these awful movies, but he <sighs> didn't. That's just his name. Oh my God, but that's great. The producer of the movie, an Alan Smithy film, didn't like the way it turned out. So that movie is produced by Alan Smithy. I did not realize that that was on purpose. I thought that was a joke. Oh, that's wonderful. No. <laughs> Here's, and then A, A explains this to me while we're watching Executive Decision. And I'm like, oh, like the Broccoli's in the James Bond movie. That's another fake family name. <laughs> Turns out, Turns the, out. the Broccoli's is a real freaking family name. Yes, 
Yes. I, I, I might even pronounce it broccoli, but hey, yeah, whatever, yeah. man. <laughs> also that. And you know what? I how, Our friend Howard uh, in Portland is absolutely like probably just spit his tea all over his keyboard. Like, are you kidding me? Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, well. truth. <clears throat> all right. So now we are. Let's let's go over some more of the uh, minutia of this movie. Uh, first of all, I'd like to point out that Whip Hubley was in Top Dude. Gun. Yes, he was. So yes. He, he got he to say he was he was Hollywood in Top Gun. Mm-hmm. So he's the one who got to say no. Wait, was he? He wasn't Slider. He was Hollywood? no. He wasn't Slider. He was Hollywood. But yep. uh, Sorry. I also honestly thought he was Slider. Slider. I had to look it up, and he was Hollywood. So he yeah. Was, he doesn't get to say that. But he does get to say some lines about F-14s because he flew an F-14. Well, and speaking Gun, of, uh, is this great. is an interesting thing. If we talk about, so if you don't, if you didn't watch all of Executive Decision, spoiler, at the end, uh, David Grant, who is the uh, think tank guy, uh, has to land the plane. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you see mm-hmm. him very early in the film, you see him taking flight lessons in a teeny tiny, I don't think it's a Cessna, but it's a teeny tiny plane like a Cessna. And... Um, and then he lands a giant 747 or something. Uh, and those are quite different things. And uh, the, only, the only thing, though, it's not a little tiny plane. It's actually a slightly larger beach craft that has landing gear. So, ah, you know, most of the smaller that, planes, their landing gear never go. goes up. That there makes sense. But, that makes sense. Yeah, but the beach craft they show him flying at the beginning as a student has landing gear. And so, he, he sort of forgets the landing gear when he's up yes. in the air, which is and a, a really the nice flaps. tip. I mean, all these things he has to do. But I mean, I don't know if, you know, he would know that there literally is a book, a big binder that says everything about the plan. Like he has to know what the approach speed is and what angle the flaps are supposed to be. At least at they had him get the book. At least they had him like, you know, they this information is available on the plane, you know, just in case of terrorists with nerve gas. They have that yeah. handy all the time. But now, this, what I'd like you to do, Scott, yeah. is uh, get yourself in a frenzy thinking that your office is about to crash. Grab one of those books behind you and in 15 seconds, find three very specific pieces <laughs> of information. Oh, no. In a book you've never Wait, looked at. I'll stop. I'll grab. <laughs> the office attendant and say, hey, you, look yeah. up in this book because you have to know where it's at. So I assume that with all the subtleties in this movie and in, in the overt transparent, like when he's flying a plane in the opening or after the first action scene, you're like, guess what he's going to do later on? He's going to mm-hmm. land a plane like you, you can see that coming. But I'm going to guess there's a few things left in the cutting room floor, like yeah. Halle Berry was probably like studying to go take the captain test or something like that. that. She knows see? where everything's at and he knows where. So there's little things that get cut out in, in editing all the mm-hmm. time. But this screenplay, I learned this from uh, my, my, uh, my extensive research, my, my fam, esteemed colleagues, my esteemed colleagues right here. The screenwriting oh, okay. brothers, Jim and John Tom Thomas also wrote both the predator movies, which right, are boom. both awesome. So there's boom. some serious nineties action adventure. Pow, 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 pow. Oh, Predator, Predator 2, and Executive Decision. Probably others, I'm going to guess. Not bad. No, that's pretty good. And the director, this was actually Stuart Baird's first movie he ever directed. He was a longtime film editor. Uh He goes on to direct only two more films, U.S. Marshals and Star Trek Nemesis. And then doesn't direct again. But he continues film editing, to which he just edited like the last two Bond movies. He's the editor. Um, he started out one of his first films. He edited the first Superman um, huh. movie. So he's had a long Huge and distinguished career. career. Long and distinguished. <laughs> and you have to wonder if he um, <laughs> if if he just preferred 
Like, that's a weird thing. Well, I mean, it's I, I, not I like these movies did poorly. But the director, no, no, they didn't. The director is, uh, it, it's it's a, a lot like being a, a coach in the NFL. Like, it's an, that's all you, your whole life is that and nothing but that. And I don't think editor has the same kind of the same kind of demand. First of all, everything's on on tape. So you're dealing with studios and you're dealing with a director and dealing with screenwriters. You're not dealing with Steven Seagal. You're not dealing with Kurt Russell Man. being mad at Steven Seagal. And I imagine if you like that kind of chaos, then you want to be the director. If you're not into that kind of chaos, you're like, dude, I don't I don't need this. I got a few money. I'm out. Maybe, yeah, maybe. sometimes Sometimes the huge payday is, isn't worth it, right? And you I'm have sure paid a hell of a lot more to be the director, but you have to take on a hell of a lot more headaches. So, I'm sure you know, he does just, like, just eh, fine. I'm good. Now, what's interesting about this movie is also the film portrays the hijacking of a plane to be used in a terrorist attack, much like the attack in the World Trade Center yep. on September 1st, 2001. Flight numbers 343, which is the exact number of firefighters killed on September 11th. This movie, I don't know if it... It, it, it doesn't get too caught up in political correctness, like some Tom Clancy mm-hmm. movies where the plot was completely adjusted from the book in order to be more sensitive to people who were being maligned at the time. Yeah. This movie really just goes straight down the pipe. It does not portray the terrorists as caricatures or dumb. They are fully committed to their cause. They are justified in their cause. And they're, they're screwy. Against, they're, they're like amongst themselves. They have sort of, they you have know, in, in, in a scene yeah, fighting. Just yeah. like everybody else does. Like yes. they're not, they're not a one, this one big unified force uh, and totally evil or anything like but that. But the movie from the, from a character perspective and a screening perspective, it did a, it did a good job. Like what I always find mesmerizing, what I try and put in my work all the time is uh, if, if the writers or the movie makers do the job, do their job correctly, you are not entirely sure who to root for. It's usually mm-hmm. an eighty twenty, and and your mm-hmm. your general culture eighty percent want to win, but if twenty percent he's like, oh god, those guys are trying so hard, or those those guys <laughs> those guys believe what they're doing so much, and like if you get that twenty percent, that's when you have people just ripping through the pages, rewinding scenes. It's a it's a skill set, and they did a very good job with it. My favorite. <laughs> Excuse me. My favorite note that my esteemed colleague Rob Otto shared with us um, is this one. In the aftermath of 9-11, which Scott just brought up, it has become official and very highly publicized U.S. policy that a plane is liable to be shot out of the sky if it is even suspected of being hijacked by suicide bombers. Never mind suicide bombers who have a weapon of mass destruction also oh. on board. So I think you might be right, Rob, if, if something like this happened in real life today. We'd never have a movie. They'd be shot down yeah, this, before they. This movie, USA this movie would have been over before Steven Seagal ever got anywhere near that plane. This, this movie. Oh, hey, look, hey, there's there's a hijacked plane. F-14s. Okay, see you later. Let's yeah. go back to dinner. Which would have been great for Austin Travis. He did not fare well. No, he did not. He did oh not wow! Fare well. uh, you guys have informed me in this. Uh, both Kurt Russell and Steven Seagal were considered for the Expendables in 2010. Mm-hmm. After this film, both turned it down. Russell in favor of not looking back, and Seagal because of a few, because of a feud. Shocker! With producer Avi Lerner. Also, let's be honest. There's no way Steven Seagal could have done this movie with like 12 other A-list yeah. action adventure guys who are all getting like less than five minutes of screen time. No, no, no. That yeah, that that would have been an issue and. You know, that was a check your ego at the door, the Expendables movies. And from everything we know of Steven Seagal, (laughs) this is the one and only time he ever tried to do that. And he still couldn't do it very well. Yeah. And as you said, like uh, Rob, Rob brings all the best little nuggets of information to our story. Mm, I got me some nuggets. (laughs) (laughs) He also talked about uh, Steven, the, the script as it was originally written. He mentioned this earlier was 
uh, Travis was always intended to die in the first few minutes of the movie, but he was supposed to die because of a cha- is it a change in cabin pressure that would yeah, make his head essentially explode? his head was supposed to explode from a, a change in cabin pressure. Here's the thing. Wow. For the wow, wow, for, wow. for all the Steven Seagal stuff that we now know, now that it's 2021 instead of 1996. Uh, he seems to to be that kind of a gentleman anyway, he like does. that sort of a person. <laughs> that said, I'm not mad that he didn't want to die that way. That's ludicrous. You know, I, I thought the way he died was great. I thought also it was ludicrous, but less so, and I liked it better. The, too. Old, the one of the only drawbacks I because this uh, the the um, high line cable work above the cabin. I was waiting for someone to fall off the cable, fall through the plane ceiling and wind mm-hmm. up. I was waiting for someone to accidentally get caught out and sit down in a seat like, oh, I'm just another passenger. And then eventually get discovered. There was so much in this movie. They did a great job with one of the devices I try and use a lot, which is the fake red herring. Or no, the red herring. It is. It's well, a straight red herring. It is a straight red herring. Um, yeah, fake red herring would be something that actually happens. <laughs> yeah, which would be a, just a herring. What you try and do is, uh, all of us have seen so many movies, so many TV shows, read so many books, played so many video games. There are tropes that are always present, and tropes work for a reason because people get done with consuming that product. Like that part was great. I know I've seen that seventy-eight times in different things. Mm-hmm. It's still pulled at my heartstrings. And when boy meets girl and they ride off in the sunset, it still gets you, even though you know it's coming. One of the games you can play as a creator is you present, here's a thing that's going to happen, and then all the smarmy a-holes like me are like, oh, like he's not going to fall through the ceiling and wind up in a chair. Yeah, but this is and about brush off, stop, put up a, like, <laughs> like, that's not going to happen. He's not going to sit there reading the New York Times or something. Like, it's obvious. It's so obvious. And then it doesn't happen. You're like, you guys, you sons of bitches got me. <laughs> I like that you both have your own individual voices for the smarmy movie guy. <laughs> <laughs> Rob and I have watched, watched literally thousands of movies together, and this is—it's uh, hard to get through a movie. It's hard to get through a movie without being smarmy. I have to mention it; nobody else has yet. So I will say that there are several flight attendants on this flight. One of them is played by Marla Maples Trump, who was mm-hmm. at the time married to Donald Trump, which is the closest we get to a president and this movie on inauguration week. <laughs> yeah, her whole her whole role was to look concerned. To tell Halle Berry, don't do that. that. That's pretty much what she does this entire movie. What are you doing? Don't do that. She did what great are you doing? She was very don't good do at that. that. Yeah. She might have had a lot of practice at to the be- time. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> right. Might have been not even acting. All right. All right. Last thing, I'm going to bring up one thing. Then, Rob, you you give me a closer. A, give me okay. a closer. Uh, this is fascinating. For a movie that does present Islamic Terrorist as the villain, which was a bold choice, at, 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 not quite as bold as later on, but uh, you know, it's it it, it it was a decision that had to be made to not change that and let, let's make them South Africans, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. They actually do that, and it it, it plays very well. Um, and then in this in the original '96 release, Nagi San refers to Westerners as infidels. In the digital release post 9/11, he refers to them as enemies. Original yeah. motion can be seen as of 2019 in Netflix. That's crazy. It is It is uh, a group of people who believe in their cause, their Islamic cause so much, they're willing to die to forward the cause, they're willing to do all this stuff. And the thing that they change is the word it's infidels word. to enemies? That's bonkers, isn't it? Like, what's the difference at this point? The whole movie is about this. I, Oddly enough, I watched it on Amazon Prime, yeah. and it used the word infidel. It did not use the digitally it back. edited audio. So hmm. I don't I don't know. 
George right. Beck, I'm not sure if you were here earlier, yeah, uh, we but were. yes, we agree. David Suchet was an amazing, amazing yes. villain, and he did. I I think he had the most uh, nuanced performance in this. He's in this awesome. Movie. He's oh, what a great bad guy. And Just you know, so it's good. really nice. I what I like about this is this is one movie. Like I said, I am definitely still in the so bad it's good camp, but. Um, individually i think so many of the people who came and 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 acted in this movie and performed in this movie had this insane script with an insane several plot points mm -hmm. uh, we're going to cry you know whatever and then they actually stood up and did it to the best of their abilities and made it as real as they could and i think uh, nagi hassan uh, david suchet's character is the best example of this but we have several of them i think oliver platt does well Everybody i think good. cappy does it's, well it's i not, think rat does really well good. i'm not so sure that david travis and or david grant and and uh, austin travis uh, kurt russell and and Steven Seagal, they do the best they could, mm -hmm. but they do admirably well. But all the supporting cast, I believe, really easily slips into the only way to make this work is to make this real. And I think they do. A I good think job. the I think the drama that works best is when Cappy and Cahill are trying to disarm the yeah, bomb. Yeah, they're great. And they really work. There's well no together. action. It's mostly static shots and a lot of close-ups. And you see, you know, Cahill's. You see Platt's shaking hand and all mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. That's the mm -hmm. real drama. In this movie, it really is. Yeah, I will. Sure. Uh, I will uh, finish up. My last point about this movie is that for all the fun performances and the uh, the erstwhile efforts of all of the acting crew involved, it's all of the moving parts of the puzzle piece of an action adventure screenplay that they that they managed to still write a taut screenplay that has all of these things going on and all these different threads coming together at the end and all these subtleties and they're obvious but they're there and yet they did that with crazy personalities and forced rewrites on the set mm -hmm. the uh the, the thomas brothers did a fantastic job with this screenplay mm -hmm. it's just for for what it is for an action adventure movie in the 90s they crushed it rob yeah, any last with, thing to say leguizamo doing a whole bunch of as he does he's smart he's funny so he ad-libs. Mm -hmm. And apparently he was ad-libbing so much that he even pissed Kurt Russell off. So maybe Kurt Russell didn't mind Steven Seagal, you know, giving <laughs> a little elbow to John Leguizamo <laughs> earlier. But a couple of the best lines, I hope there's a good movie on this flight. Oh, and so then good. when he takes Kurt Russell's shoes off, he says, boy, I hope the smell doesn't give us away. Those were all ad-libs. Oh, really? Wow. So, oh, that's good. Especially yeah. I hope this is a good movie or there's a good movie on this flight is... Yeah. Because you know what? One of, the, one of the Thomas brothers said the other one, you know what we should say when he gets on there? should be, hey, is there a good movie on this flight? And the other one said, dude, that's ridiculous. Don't do that. And, and then, then John, and then does John it and goes, ha ha, told you, bro. <laughs> and whoever that brother was, was also like, should we stick in? You need to make an executive decision. No, yeah, not, not no. now? Not, okay. <laughs> Later. When do we say it? When do we say it? Is this the do, exec? No? Not, okay. All right. All right. <laughs> Rob, any closing things to say about this wonderful 1996 action adventure film that has stood the test of time, sort of? I also like that there is almost no hint at romance between the lead male character and the lead female character. Right? Yes. Maybe at the end when he asks her out for a cup of coffee, maybe that's trying to imply something. But this isn't, you know, we're mm -hmm. in the middle of this situation, in the middle of this play and let's make out. Thankfully, never happens. And then yeah. there's a throwaway line right at the end of the movie where um, Kurt Russell is a big hockey fan and asks her if she likes hockey. And she says, no, I like baseball. She was married to David Justice of the Atlanta Braves at the time <laughs> she made this movie. So I don't know if that was one she suggested, but it. it's, a, it's a cute little throw in at the end.
So we're just about done with this, but Rob, I'm hoping that you will come back in two weeks on February 6th and uh, talk about swingers. Oh, yes. Mm. Close to Valentine's Day. It's it's on. It is so on. Look, look, it's on. (laughs) It's so money. You guys, if you haven't seen swingers, go. It's uh, just a... It's a crazy, wonderful, fantastic film that launched several several careers and indie film that launched. Yeah, several yeah. people that we love uh, today. Got if you ever, there, if you yeah. love Marvel movies, if you love Marvel movies, go watch Swingers. You'll be shocked. It's amazing. So, Rob, thank you and, so much. Uh, oh, go it's ahead. Right, yeah, it's right before uh, Valentine's Day, and this is the story about the hopeless romantic. I mean, it's perf- perfect. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. Who, who drives, what is it, a Corolla or something? <laughs> it's not yeah, a good Yeah, and not then the girl movie. stops talking to him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Robbie, thank you so much for joining us yet Woo-hoo. again. Fantastic. So so nice to chat with you guys. I wish I could have watched so more movies together with it's you guys. It's me and not Kurt Russell. I'll take my glasses off. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it'll be Kurt Russell, my dreams, bro. Sorry. Sorry bro. Oh, wow. Sorry, bro. Wow. wow. <laughs> All right, Rob. Bye, buddy. Bye. Let's go back to Maine, and then boom, and baby, let's uh, let's say our goodbyes. These so, lovely people are hung out and having a good time with us. As I just mentioned, Story Snack will be back on February 6th with the live cast. It'll drop into the podcast feed after that, and we will be watching the movie Swingers. Uh, keep watch at scottsigler.com or facebook.com slash story smack for news about our next review. And of course, as always, thanks so much for, to Rob Otto for joining us. Uh, So that is it for episode 63 of Story Smack. You can find Scott and I online. Scott is at Scott Sigler at Twitter and Instagram. And his Facebook page is facebook.com slash Scott Sigler. I am at a real girl on Twitter and at a.real.girl on Instagram. And you can find us online at facebook.com slash storiesmack. We do update it every now and then. But if you're listening to this or watching this, just go to uh, facebook.com slash scottsigler and catch up or scottsigler.com. You can watch a stream story smack at facebook.com slash scottsigler, twitch.tv slash scottsigler, and youtube.com slash scottsigler. We do it every other Saturday, and we would love to have you join us. And in addition to Story Smack that we do every other Saturday, every Wednesday, we do Sigler in place. At the same place that you're watching this, at Wednesdays at 6 p.m. Pacific time, we do about an hour of just hanging out and talking and interacting so that we don't uh, spend all of our time alone. And we don't spend too much time doom scrolling, which is a doom which scrolling. Is a thing, yes. And we, I release an unabridged episode of one of my full-length audiobooks every gosh darn Sunday. You can get episodes for free via iTunes, via Spotify, iHeartRadio, many more. Just go to scottsigler.com slash subscribe. I've been doing this for 16 years, and we ain't going to stop anytime soon. <laughs> we do hope that you subscribe to listen to Scott's books and more Story Smack goodness in the future. And until the next episode, we will talk to you all real soon. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. 
And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.